You're listening to Dialogues on 3CR Community Radio. Every Wednesday night at midnight. Good evening. You're listening to Dialogues with me, Joe Raleigh. This week I'm speaking to Scott Broadhurst, who is an old and dear friend of mine from the UK. Scott is a psychiatrist in training, and uh, Scott's going to be talking uh, with me about madness, mental health, and various topics related to those things. And he's also going to be playing us a few songs, which are significant to him in various different ways. So, Scott, thanks for joining me. Thank you, Joe. It's a pleasure to speak to you. It's really nice to hear your voice again. Right. It's been too long. I can't actually remember the last time I saw you. Yeah, it has actually been ages, hasn't it? How how is how's the UK? It's okay. Uh, uh, it it it's pouring down with rain, but it's warm, so it swings around about. Yeah, that's fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> it has. Well, I'm pre. We're pre-recording this show. It's actually the Sunday before this is going to be going out. Um, so okay. it's a few days ago, and it's it has been a pretty lovely weekend. Um, but so not not jealous at all. <laughs> you, you, you love lovely weather, Joe. <laughs> but now that it's um, Wednesday, just after midnight, um, I think people would definitely appreciate a bit of music. So what? Certainly. What are we going to hear? So this is the Palace by Father John Misty. Um, he is someone I've liked for a while now. He writes very um, interesting lyrics very self-revelatory, very honest. And his this song is called The Palace and it it, it has a sort of mournful piano to it, but there's a, a like hangover from a lost weekend sense to the lyrics as well. I really like it. Anyway, it's called The Palace by Father John Misty. That was The Palace by Father John Misty. You're listening to 3CR on 855 AM. This is Dialogues. I am Joe Raleigh and this week I'm speaking to Scott Broadhurst, a UK-based trainee psychiatrist and very good friend of mine from home. Before we came on air, Scott and I were talking about depression and how depression works. Just picking up on how people when they're depressed doing something which might uh, seem pretty trivial or easy from someone who isn't depressed is actually very effortful Um, you know just something as simple as getting up on time or you know getting up early in the morning going outside going for a walk cleaning your room anything like that I feel as if for those people who aren't particularly immediately sympathetic towards people with mental health issues, it's that particular point that maybe they haven't latched onto or they haven't completely gotten. It's the, the idea that things which are easy for you might be difficult for other people. Absolutely. I think I think there's an understandable lack of empathy. in, in When I say empathy, I mean in the the true sense of the word of I, I as an empathy is un- understanding what the other person is 
is thinking and feeling. I think if if you've if you've not suffered from something like depression, which that you know probably most people haven't, it, it's um, it's 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 very difficult, I think, to get your head round objectively trying to understand why someone is is behaving that way. Why are they thinking those things? Why are they doing that? Why don't they just help themselves? I think it is is the the frustration. I think there's possibly at times uh, a what the say for instance you have a a couple and the what one of the the members of the couple is depressed and the other one is not depressed yeah. and the one who's not depressed there's a there's a sense of well what have you got to be depressed about is it me is it us is it our relationship what what am i not doing in our relationship that is making you depressed and i think there's, there's a difficulty in communication of the sense that anyone can be depressed at any time it doesn't have to be to do with your environment it can just happen and that that depression can can really affect every single aspect of your life, and um, that can be very difficult to communicate within a relationship, and it can be difficult for professionals to communicate to to relatives, and it can be difficult to live with. I think if you're if you're um, the carer in that relationship, then to, to to tolerate that on a daily basis can can drain your reserves with patience, um, and I think it requires a lot of patience actually. Yeah, I, I yeah, absolutely. I think it's it's definitely it's different when it, obviously it's different depending on the quality or the kind of relationship the person has with the person who is suffering a, a mental health issue. Um, I think you know there are sort of general attitudes towards mental illness. Um, you know, between an individual and just sort of perhaps someone they don't know or someone they've had a brief encounter with. And that's one thing. But, yeah, when the stakes are higher, when that other person, for whatever reason, because they're a family member or they're a romantic partner or they're a housemate or or something like that or a work colleague, um, when, you know, they have much more opportunity or potential to impact the quality of your life on a day-to-day basis then, yeah, that can certainly test you in different ways. Um, and, and I, yeah, and I suppose just because you're kind of exposed to the, the challenging aspects of their nature in a much more direct and impacting way. And, you know, I guess plenty of romantic relationships and families have broken apart because of that. And that's, that's not like, to say that that's unreasonable. Like, you know, you're not that, you're not sort of put on the planet to to um well this is arguable but but you're not put on the planet just to kind of accommodate other people necessarily um but then i that actually that kind of feeds into uh, another question so i suppose in your job as a psychiatrist um you're, you're making the active choice to to be there for those people so that that's an interesting choice that you've made yeah, um, I think. It, it, I mean, you, you made the same choice 
many many years ago Joe. <laughs> uh, oh absolutely no no i'm not i'm not separating i yeah like i for people so, just, so, so i think the um, the the i think we, we what i'm trying to say is we're both there's we're, we're, there's um there's a i think most psychiatrists will tell you this that there's an inexorable pull towards psychiatry and i think it's, it's hard to for people who don't have that pull to understand why people do it, I think you'd agree with me, wouldn't Joe? I mean, we, we both had it. We both had it from when we first met, when we, first yeah. week of med school, really. Yeah, yeah. We, we were we were we were both psychiatrists, and and how to explain that? I don't really know. Yeah, well, that's, I think that's a really interesting question. Yeah, yeah, because I mean, it feeds into other questions, you know. Um, so, uh, yeah, as a psychiatrist, you're spending a lot of your day around people who are very disturbed, people who are suffering, and you're yeah. he- hearing about, you know, really horrible stories. So it's not surprising that that might drag you down or burden you or or actually, you know, have an impact on your own mental health. And I think there's certainly a real yeah. risk of that as a psychiatrist or someone working in mental health. Um, but yeah. then there's, if you're choosing to go into it and you're choosing to think about these things and to work in that kind of environment, then you're obviously getting something from it or it's it's kind of, it's satisfying some kind of appetite. Do you, yeah, what, what, I, what are your thoughts? Well, I, I think... Um, there's various aspects of the job that are different. Um, and uh, I remember there was a, a very wise man in medical school once told me that there's a... When you're picking your specialty, you, you need to pick which people you, you, you want to be around most of the time. Yeah. And for me, it was, I was always, always fascinated by people with psychosis. Mm -hmm. For the listeners who don't know what psychosis is, the basic definition of psychosis is when a, a patient has a vision of the world, or perception of the world, I should say, that is different to the objective reality. The, the the best the best example of this will be um when patients suffer from schizophrenia and they experience hallucinations of hearing voices or seeing things or having strange tastes or smells or feeling on the skin. Or commonly there will be what's called a delusion, which is a, a, a belief that is fixed, that is organised and complicated, that something is true in the world to the patient, that is quite clearly false. And a common delusion would be that, for example, um, there's the, the government or someone is surveilling a patient. They've implanted cameras in the house. You can have um, delusions that you are who you you are someone else, so you can have delusions that you have powers, you're the king, you're the queen. Um, and that is what drew me to psychiatry, yeah, in the beginning. That was, I 
absolutely fascinated by that and still am fascinated by that on a daily basis. Mm. And <clears throat> that that speaks to the essence of who we are, really. That someone can question perception in that way. Yeah. Well, it's we like... take perception for granted every single day. We, we go through the world trusting our senses, trusting our brains, our minds, that, broadly speaking, what we perceive is true. Mm-hmm. And, and when you're suffering from a psychotic episode, however that affects you, you can't trust your senses. But, but yeah. why would you question your senses? So people, of course, don't question their senses because... Why would you question your senses? So, so that that absolutely fascinates well, me always. Well, your senses normally function in a way that helps you survive and thrive in the world. I mean, you can get into the whole sort of philosophy of perception and all that kind of stuff, and you know, not ever necessarily knowing the objective world uh, apart from through science or, or whatever. Um, but generally speaking, the way that you are perceiving when it's healthy, it's it's kind of helpful to you or you can use it in a helpful way. Whereas when those sorts of functions break down, um, in the way that so many other aspects of, of uh, humans as entities can, can uh, break down or be impaired or disordered, um, yeah, it, it then gives rise to these bizarre, fascinating, intriguing, mysterious phenomena that are you know, mental health symptoms and signs. So, you know, in the, in the whole uh, kind of category of, of pathology, when you're studying medicine, you're looking at various aspects of people that can go wrong. It's mainly biological aspects of the person. Um, and I'm not saying that's not the case in psychiatry, but I'm just saying that in psychiatry, the functions that are going wrong are much more kind of exotic and rarefied and less understood and mysterious. They're, they're the functions of the self and perception yeah. and belief and uh, experience in general. Um, and, you know, we've got a, a long way to go in terms of understanding how they work when they're working well, let alone how they work when they're working, uh, when they're not working well. And and that was that's one aspect of our education that I've, I think it's the same for anyone who studies medicine is when you learn about diseases you also learn about the body when it functions correctly you learn about anatomy and physiology and then you learn about pathology when either of those things go wrong but I don't feel like we necessarily learnt I mean I wouldn't even know what what field of study you would it would it would be that you'd study uh, to kind of contrast with psychiatry I mean, you could you could say, oh, maybe it's psychology, or it's neuroscience, or or it's cognitive science. Or, but it's that's what's really interesting about psychiatry is that you actually need all of those things together in order to understand what it is that is going wrong when you're dealing with mental health issues. Do you know, do you know what I mean? I do. I think it's it's fascinating. Um, within psychiatry, you will have um, a spectrum of schools of thought about what causes things, what causes problems. And at both ends of the spectrum, you have one, you have dogmatists who are, who believe in 
psychoanalysis, psychotherapy. So in this stuff, they believe that everything in the world is to do with the functions of your upbringing and environment and everything can be cured by examining that. And then you have the opposite end of the spectrum where you will have dogmatic neuropsychiatrists, that's probably the wrong term, so biological psychiatrists, I should say. So people who will believe that sort of psychological theories are ephemera and really what we need to do is nail down the biological correlates to all of these behavioral states and then once we do that then we will be able to sort of crack the black box as it were mm. and then but what, what what was really fascinating about that is that speaks to the most difficult philosophical problem that exists which is what is consciousness absolutely really i mean which is something you've studied more than me. but it, So we're, we're speaking to the hard problem of consciousness. What is the stuff of thought? And that is what psychiatrists are doing every day, whether they realise it or not. Hmm. Yeah, that's, and, and that's the, um, the medium, if you like, throughout which mental symptoms and experiences are... Like, that is, that's the primary medium. Um, and you can sort of tra- try and translate that into something physical, and there's clearly a lot of value in doing that. But you're, you're clear if you're removing the mind in your descriptions of what's happening, then you're missing out something essential and primary in that picture. Well, well exactly. If, 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 to use a crude example that no longer stands up, but to say that you have a a, a depletion of serotonin which is obviously a very outdated view of saying that, that that's what causes depression. Mm. If I say I have low serotonin, that doesn't explain why I feel this way, does it? Yeah. For, you, for, for one second. You're, you're describing something, and there's, yeah. you know, there's a utility in doing that, because you know, if you can find a way to chemically boost serotonin levels, then that, that might have some kind of impact. But you're not, you're, it's not particularly enlightening to... to refer to that it, there's a descriptive reality to it but it's not exactly explaining how that then rela- relates to this subjective experience of a low mood um but i feel like because of that psychiatry is just really particularly well placed to unify all of those different fields because where else would you need to do that unless you just had a particular interest in all those different fields but there's a real clinical utility because the purpose of psychiatry in order to like alleviate mental suffering i guess you could say or understand mental disorders better i think actually requires you to be able to have an awareness of all of those different fields of study i you know biology neuroscience cognitive neuroscience psychology social studies perhaps philosophy i think you do actually need to bring all of those things together in order to understand these complex phenomena um and there's nowhere else that really demands that kind of unification um so i think that that's another really interesting aspect about psychiatry well i think the best psychiatrists i've ever met 
can do that. They, they can. They're, they're not dogmatically one way or the other. Uh, and I think, given we we practically know so little about the biology of you know the self consciousness, I think <coughs> it's a bit of a utopian goal, really, to expect us to know about that in the next in our lifetime. Anyway, I think you have to be. You have to have exactly what you said. You need to be aware of all the different aspects of the history of psychiatry. So, to an extent, the Freudians and and the the, the psychoanalytic revolution of the the twentieth century. You need to have an awareness of that because that helps. That helps to have an awareness of how. The things that we grew up with in childhood and practice for the rest of our life mm-hmm. in a sense of history repeats itself and we we make history repeat itself we we infect our future relationships with our past relationships we see models of figures from the past in the present and the future and having an awareness of that can help you to arrest that continuing dysfunctional pattern so that that means you need to have an awareness of other things like cognitive behavioral therapy if you can have an awareness of how your thoughts affect your feelings and affect your behaviors which affect your feelings and your thoughts and you can use that model to do certain treatments and you can treat yourself and i and as a psychiatrist now as a general psychiatrist i have gained a, a broader knowledge and I can use all of these different schools of thought to help understand patients hmm. and to treat them. And then you have the main basis of our treatment, which is, is medications. Mm-hmm. That, that's the most instant treatment anyway. And that, 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 that all together helps you to make a more comprehensive and meaningful and longer-lasting intervention. Yeah. The, the challenge comes because you, um, you're you not this person's parent, you're not the carer, and there's certainly times where you, you have a heavy heart because you know I need to fix your life. <laughs> I, don't, I can't just give you medication and I can't just give you an awareness of what's gone before and how that's affecting your yeah. current relationships because you're still going home to, you know, abuse or dysfunctional relationships I and mean, then you've got no capacity to escape that. And, mm. does, yeah. does that get you down? Like, does that get you down ever? Yeah, well, particularly there was a, I did a, a rotation in child and adolescent psychiatry. Yeah. That was particularly dispiriting at times because there was a sense of really, really wanting to fix a family, not just a, a child, you know, because you, you knew that this child had chronically dysfunctional relationships with uh, parents. Mm. And um, unless you fix that, really, you were 
you're only going to be putting a sticking plaster on problems. Mm. Yeah, there was a time where you, certainly times where you just felt like you were banging your head against a brick wall a little bit. And that is that is dispiriting at times, but I think the that doesn't mean that you you stop because there there are always successes, and you you just have to keep trying anyway. Really. Okay. Yeah. Because yeah, I think the satisfactions. Obviously, you know, you do a job, you want it to satisfy you. Otherwise, why why would you do it? Um, so the satisfactions aren't necessarily going to come in thick and fast. But but where? So I've I've worked in psychiatry um, a little bit, and what I really enjoyed and felt was rewarding was being able to form a connection with somebody who, for whatever reason, might have been inherently unwilling to to want to connect with me at that particular time or difficult to connect with and just being able to establish a rapport with that person um you know a healthy rapport was very satisfying and sometimes quite difficult to do that's absolutely one of the the greatest satisfactions in psychiatry is exactly that joe because i think um the other aspects of medicine Every, every other aspect of medicine, in fact, it, it is very much a um, paternalistic relationship between the doctor and the patient, mm. whether you like it or not. The, the doctor asks questions, gives instructions, and very much the patient obeys. Yeah. Psychiatry is, is not like that at yeah. all. Yeah. We are often forcing people to do things that they don't want to do. Mm. And they resist, and we legally force them to do things. Everything is a negotiation. Um, and absolutely right, Joe, that one of the greatest satisfactions is getting a, a patient who is scared because of a psychotic episode that they're going to, or because they've been forced to, to be detained to a hospital against their will, and then breaking down that barrier of fear and anger and and connecting on a human level mm. and giving some sort of succor and compassion and just a bit of humanity really mm. that that is that is certainly the most satisfying part of the job yeah. by, by by a mile and I think the thing is that has to be authentic you can't fabricate that. And also, this is happening in an environment where often what the psychiatrist's job is in a one-on-one situation is to try and establish from their point of view what's going on with that person. So you'll be going through a, a, a list of questions, in, in a manner of speaking, essentially asking this person to confess their madness. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so you can see why someone might be defensive because they can, you know, that they, they might understand that what they're saying sounds mad. Um, so, so that, I think there's yeah. often a, a general sort of if, if someone's been um, a, a patient for a long time in and out of hospital, there's a there's a, a natural distrust because it, it often feels like someone's being punished for telling their truth. Right. Yeah. So, so their 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 truth might be that they're experiencing 
you know, voices or seeing things or that they believe in a paranoid delusion that they're under threat. And there's a, there's a sense of we, we are trying to treat that because we see that as a symptom of mental illness. But, but to, to confess that means that you extend your stay, that you get treatment, that you don't get to go home. Yeah. And the, there's that aspect to the, the conversation that adds attention, certainly. Yeah, definitely. What is your view on madness uh, or like mental health issues, mental disorder being kind of continuous with normalcy? I think um, I, I I think we 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 tend to group things into disorders because it's easy for us. We see patterns and um, we we group things into disorders, be they schizophrenia, depression, bipolar disorder, because it allows us to categorise and then treat based on the categories. Because as doctors, that's what we like. We like things to be in boxes and that helps us and there's a utility to that Mm. because it means that people get broadly similar treatment it means that there's there's not wildly divergent dangerous treatment going on Mm -hmm. across the board so i think there's a there's a utility to um in a pragmatic sense delineating between you know mental illness and mental health I think probably in a in a real sense in a in a actual sense i I personally think there's there's probably a lot more of a continuum going on all the time really mm. um i think I think within the same person there'll be a continuum from various different times of the day based mm. on what they've done that day, mm. how much sleep they've had, all the things we were talking about earlier. Um, and, yes, yeah, so, so I think, I, I think it, it's a, it's a practical, necessary boundary, but I think actually, yeah, it's, um, it's, it's, and I think, I think one of, one of the issues that does bring up as well is, is, um, sort of us and them dynamic mm-hmm. yeah. um, and, a, and a shame dynamic as well yeah. um, I mean we're, we're trying to fight stigma all the time on mental illness but it's certainly still there and um, I think really there's, if, if people were more honest they'd probably admit that they've had times where they've experienced things like that Certainly, low mood is, is probably a lot more common than than um, is admitted to. That, that's like, yeah, it's certainly really interesting thinking about that in the social sphere, <clears throat> because I think things are changing. Like, people are definitely you do see mental health in headlines on the news way more frequently than you know in the last couple of years, and you hear people talking about anxiety and depression a lot more as well as you're saying. Um, so I, I feel like that that is changing, but there's still that kind of discontinuity, isn't there, between everyday experiences and oh, now that's completely pathological. There's a sort of 
there's a line on one side it's pathology and it's illness and on the other side it's it's just a sort of I don't know you don't necessarily comment on it and, and I think that that it's probably it's not a, a new thing to say that there isn't a line it's a gray area the line is yeah. blurred um well, I think my own my own sort of fuzzy way of thinking about it I, my, my own personal opinion is I I, I think well I, I don't know I know there, there are certainly plenty of people who will happily go through the world with a what we would call delusional or psychotic view of the world mm. but it can impact their function so so they they still can um you know, feed themselves, look after themselves independently. Yeah. Maybe not hold down a job, but but function within the bounds of relative normalcy. Yeah. And I, I think that w- where we tend to intervene and treat is is when things start to break down in terms of function. So it's when these symptoms that you're having are meaning that. You know, you're not getting out of bed. You're not eating. You're not um, functioning in that way, or you have become a risk to yourself or to others yeah. of harm. And that's that's where I would draw the line of saying that this is this is where this is now a a disorder that we actively need to treat. Yeah. I think if someone, if, I mean, there's obviously, well, it's not obvious to the listener, but there's a school of thought that the the biggest thing we can do for schizophrenia is to treat it within the first two years of developing symptoms, and then it's got a much better chance of not relapsing. Right. So there's, there's an argument to say that um, we should treat the first episode of psychosis aggressively and that's how most systems are now set, set up all over the world is to have an early intervention into an episode of psychosis. So there's the argument that you can treat it better that way but once I think you've developed a, an illness like schizophrenia and it, it, it's, it's set in you, that's who you are, I, I think broadly speaking you should be allowed to exist with your symptoms if you're happy and you're functioning mm-hmm. I don't think we should aggressively treat <clears throat> symptoms for the sake of symptoms being there I think it should only be when it's impacting your ability to live and be happy yeah definitely yeah because uh, what what else have you got to go on really um, yeah then, then it's just sort of social norms and, and things like that and that's, yeah. that's much stickier territory um, yeah yeah, because I think going going back to that sort of really zoomed out view of things, uh, you know, at the end of the day, we're we're sort of living entities navigating our way through the world, you know. And you got the whole like, the Maslow pyramid of needs. So you know, essentially, you're just trying to survive, and then ultimately trying to be happy and and spend the majority of your time flourishing. And you hope that you're getting better at that the longer you're around and you're adjusting to new challenges that are faced at different ages and you know hopefully you've got some good traits and propensities and occasionally you'll you'll make big mistakes and you'll 
fall off and get back up and I feel like mental illness is really just when that functioning there are different kinds of traps that you can fall into or dead ends or holes and they're they're the specific kinds of derailments in that kind of navigation through life that aren't perhaps necessarily best understood just in terms of your biology going wrong although that probably is a part of it but it's it's more to do with that sort of process of adjusting to reality and making choices within reality um yeah yeah absolutely you nailed it Have you have you ever been mad? I think um, I think I've been sad. I don't know whether that means I've been mad. Mm. I think it's an interesting question. Um, I don't think. I think what what we do in psychiatry is we we tend to define madness in in the sense of psychosis. Oh, yeah. And and what 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 the thing we seem to really use is this term called insight. Okay. Which is so insight will be are you aware that the things you're suffering from are not real or disordered or you know, are you aware that the way you're perceiving the world is not how the world actually is? And are you aware that this means that we want to treat you? I don't think I've ever had that where I've lacked an insight, as it were, into my own mental health. Right. But I've certainly had periods where I've felt low. I've certainly had periods where... I've identified um, that in myself, and yeah. thankfully, it tends to resolve itself. Really, yeah, definitely. Um, and I, I suppose a big part of that is having been relatively lucky with your upbringing Absolutely. and your environment. Um, I mean, I, I think, think I've always I've always had support. Yeah, I think that that's something that's very important to touch upon. I think um, the the success we often see, or conversely, the failure of um, treatments of, of functioning is, is certainly a lot to do with the social networks of, of people and the support that they have, um, and. That's when things often break down, is when it's not been there. And then it, it goes back to what you were saying, uh, what we were saying, I should say, earlier about um, the different fields of psychiatry and the, the theories of... So, so if we, we, we look at the Freudians and, and, all the, and the psychology in general, there's, there's clearly a huge impact and there's evidence to suggest this about childhood trauma, childhood abuse, and how that can affect the, can cause conditions like schizophrenia. So the fact that I've had a, 
that privilege upbringing and continue to have the support that that privilege upbringing has given me means that when I do have times when I'm low, that there are wells of support that I can draw from. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. And your your sort of beliefs of what reality is that you've uh, established as you've grown up. Yeah. Uh, you know, the world is, in, it may be inherently kind of supportive or things tend not to go that wrong or they, they don't, they, they go wrong, but they never go wrong beyond a certain point in terms of your experience. Um, and that speaks to something Freud said as well about Freud viewed uh, psychosis as a defense mechanism against uh, pain and trauma. So he, he, he viewed it literally as, as if it was the, the brain trying to deny reality by and defend itself from reality by viewing another reality. Really? That's one of Freud's classic defense mechanisms is, is psychosis. Right. I like that. I mean, there's a certain, I mean, there's a there's a, there's a certain truth to that because there's a if if you have an um, intolerable unbearable life, then you, you can you can certainly see the value in imagining that life is a different way. Yeah, as a way of escaping your own life. And I do and whether you have conscious awareness of that or not. It, it's it's that that'll be dependent on how much you believe in the unconscious and Freud, but... And I also think that, like, a lot of... Um, if, say, if somebody is is uh, mentally ill, um, a lot of the time, certain traits or behaviours or beliefs that relate to those behaviours might have come about as a result of defences that were useful in the past, but that they've just naturally sort of held on to those for longer and that what was once helpful is now sort of problematic and that you actually need to reassess those beliefs or or those sort of assumptions that might not even be particularly conscious um, as you're going throughout life but obviously it's difficult to do that and that does require a degree of uh, openness and like reflexivity as well. There's, uh, it require it's, it's a very big task to to, to examine yourself in that way. Uh, I, I'm not sure whether I could do it to be honest. If I, if I was, cause it, it 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 requires a an honesty about yourself that I think very few people are. Uh, very few people challenge themselves with to yeah. be that honest about your feelings towards your parents, but. I, you, society conditions you not to have mm. feelings towards partners, children, yourself that we're not supposed to have feelings of hate, feelings of lust, loathing, regret, things that we suppress mm-hmm. unconsciously. To, to examine that is a <clears throat> very, very difficult thing to do for anyone. Um, yeah, and I I think it'd be a very difficult thing, certainly for me to do. Uh, yeah, it's it's a, a lot of, like I say, honesty. A lot of honesty that yeah, is, is difficult. Like once you start that task, like you can kind of get a sense that 
think you haven't been completely honest with yourself. Like, okay, so where's this going to end? Like, how much? Of well, the gonna... foundations on which your life is built can, can break down. Yeah. At a, a, a very, in a very real way. And, then, and often the goal of therapy isn't that in fact to do that because the, the foundations of your life are dysfunctional and causing you to repeat the same mistakes again and again. And if, if you can break that down and rebuild it, then that, that's a, a positive thing, but it's a painful and um, difficult process, mm. like giving birth. God, yeah. And it, you know, quite risky learning, as well. Absolutely. Like, things, could think, get, things could go worse, I, I'm guessing. Like and could, I think they yeah. do often at first. I think it's a very challenging process. I mean, I, I speak as... Uh, that's, I, I'm, I'm training at the moment to practice psychotherapy as part of my, my training we all do in, in the UK. So I will have a case very shortly where I will be um, doing 24 sessions of psychotherapy where I sit down with, with someone and we we talk every week about um it it's very much led by the by the patient, this model of psychotherapy. So yeah. I will I, I try not to direct the question. It's very much led by the patient and then I'll try and interpret from that the things they bring up and not lead it at all. Yeah. And it's um I think in that way that, 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 that helps to uncover some of the unconscious rather than being biased by things I'm saying. Mm. That, that's, a, that's a process that in itself I think can be very challenging. Very, very challenging. That'll be fascinating. For me as well. Yeah, that, that'll be amazing. I think we've probably reached the end of our time. But we, should, we can definitely um, finish with... Uh, the Kurt Vile song. Oh yeah. Do you want to introduce it? Yeah. So this is a, a song called "Lost My Head" there by Kurt Vile. Um, I went travelling around um, Southeast Asia a couple of years ago, and um, there's there's a an insistence to the last minutes of this song that just grows and grows and grows it's 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 an outro that is excessively long but it it, it has a ethereal dreamlike quality to it that because it's so overly long it just grows and um it always makes me think of thai beaches <laughs> it's very pleasant for me <laughs> it's a nice memory amazing all right well yeah. scott um can we do this again at some point? Of course you can. Amazing. I'll have to visit you in, uh, in Melbourne. Oh, mate, please. <laughs> oh, short hop over. Please do. Lost my...